We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're beginning chapter 2. We've made it successfully through one chapter. And now we're starting the second chapter of really the gospel according to Peter as written by Mark. Mark would have learned all of these details from Peter. And certainly, as we'll see in our study this morning, we can find out Peter's perspective on the Lord and some specific details that might, uh, might uh, raise your eyebrows and kind of charm your hearts. Mark chapter 2, follow along as I begin reading verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days later or afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic. He was carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug... And opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins, but God alone. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But... So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed. And we're glorifying God saying, we have never seen anything like this. A recent study done by five Florida physicians pinpointed the top five most commonly misdiagnosed medical conditions that result in death. This was a very intriguing article to me. I trust it will be to you as well. I don't want to be misdiagnosed so that the misdiagnosis puts me in the grave. They examined 31 separate autopsy reports and malpractice claims, and the research they found was these are the top five most commonly misdiagnosed conditions. Are you interested? First of all, drum roll, infection. The report said victims are more likely to receive an infection misdiagnosis than any other misdiagnosis. This misdiagnosis is particularly harmful to children. 
The Journal of Pediatrics estimated that roughly half of all children are improperly diagnosed with a viral infection instead of a bacterial infection over the course of a typical year. Now, I can hear all of you moms going to the doctor this week with your kid and saying, test him for bacteria. The second most commonly misdiagnosed condition is cancer. About one in eight cancer cases are initially initially misdiagnosed with melanoma topping the list of the types of misdiagnosed cancers. The reasons for this misdiagnosis vary from assuming a growth is benign without ordering additional testing all the way to misreading the test results or overlooking subtle and early symptoms. Third is heart attacks. This surprised me. Many symptoms of a heart attack that can be, uh, that happen are misleading, such as an upset stomach or trouble breathing. Since emergency treatment is crucial for the survival rate of a heart attack victim, it is vital that patients insist on thorough testing to rule out cardiac problems. I can see already the emergency rooms in uh, Kansas City being filled this week, and they're going to begin saying, where do you go to church? (laughs) And number five, pulmonary embolisms. Many post-surgical patients are warned about the possibility of clotting after a surgery. The truth is blood clots and can cause these, these uh, clots to lead to the lungs and misdiagnose can, can kill. Also cardiovascular diseases, there's on and on. These misdiagnoses go for pages and pages. Now misdiagnosing a physical condition can be not only serious, but it can be deadly serious. It can cost you your life. But the story in front of us today shows us that misdiagnosing a spiritual condition is not only deadly serious, but could be eternally serious. Jesus, the great physician, adequately and rightly diagnoses a problem that a man didn't know he was coming to see Jesus for. Most people think that the greatest threat to their well-being is a physical disease or a physical injury, but this story is gonna prove that suspicion to be wrong. It's gonna debunk the idea that your and my greatest problems are physical. Well, let's review so that we can kind of glide into this passage appropriately. Jesus has come on the scene in Galilee. He's begun healing and casting out demons, teaching with authority. In fact, the authority with which he teaches is specifically said to be different than the theological scholars of the day, different than the scribes is what they were called. John records that earlier, Jesus had made a trip down to Jerusalem and it caused quite a stir, so much so that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers, those who were experts in the law, the theologians, began to be very suspicious of this man, not because he was speaking in the way he was and performing the miracles that he did, but because he was a threat to their status. So John records that they were suspicious and Luke tells us, we'll see in a minute, that, that they sent an investigation team north, the 100 miles to Galilee to see what this man from Nazareth was all about. Jesus has just cleansed a man from leprosy 
and the leper's unwelcomed spreading of that news caused Jesus to have to withdraw into obscurity while the leper became a rock star. As we saw last week, they ended up trading places. The leper was ostracized. Jesus was the popular. And after this misobedient, disobedient uh, leper was healed and asked to go to the priest, make an offering, be quiet about it, he tells everybody Jesus is forced into the wilderness. Now, Matthew tells us that coming into the day that we're looking at, that Jesus had been across the lake. And we know that because he says it took, Matthew says they took a boat across the lake and this scene happens immediately. Mark doesn't seem to care that we know where Jesus came from, just that he's been away for a while. You can find the same story, by the way, recorded in Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8, and Luke 5, verses 18 to 26. Now, in chapter 2, Mark is going to begin to show a transition in the ministry of Jesus that's very significant as we're studying from here to the cross, and that is opposition. Suspicion has been there, but it's going to rise to the level of direct opposition to Jesus, specifically because of what Jesus does intentionally to mess with the theology of these scribes. Opposition to the Lord is going to now parallel his popularity. This is the first recorded real opposition to Jesus. At least any in Galilee. It's the first pushback here. It's not the first pushback from the Jewish leadership though. Remember John 1, John 4 verses 1 to 4. These leaders were jealous of Jesus, began to try to tear him down when he had gone down on a visit to Jerusalem. He was a threat to their standing. He was a threat to their reputation. He was a threat to their power and their influence. Most of them were older men. This was a young 30 plus year old. According to Luke, these are the representatives from Judea, these scribes who show up at this, this house to check Jesus out. They're suspicious. They're investigating. They are trying so desperately to find him doing or saying something that they can go back to Jerusalem, report that he's a, a heretic, that he's a false teacher, or even best, that he's worthy of death and that's exactly what they're about to find. He was a heretic according to their wrong understanding of the law. He was a false teacher according to their superstitions. But when he taught the word, as Mark tells us, he taught the spirit of the law and embodied the law itself. Now what we're gonna do in this scene and you want to follow along with the outline, this is a highly unusual outline. It's just going to have textual markers. This is like taking a camera and looking at different scenes in an amazing unfolding of Jesus' deity. And it's like Mark shifts the camera from one group of people to another group of people to something happening, sometimes looking even up at the ceiling. So we're just going to follow along with these scenes if we can. Seven snapshots in a miracle of forgiveness. Seven snapshots in a miracle of forgiveness. As the video pans this scene, we're going to stop and find the snapshots. The first group of people we see is in verses one and two, one and two, a wondering crowd, not wandering, but wonder. They're curious. 
a wondering crowd. When he had come back to Capernaum, Matthew says he came from across the lake. Several days afterward, after what? After he cleansed the leper and had to withdraw because of the popularity, it was heard that he was at home. Remember, it's been several days since he left Capernaum, cleansed the leper. He comes back to what has become base camp for his ministry on the north shore of Lake Galilee. And Mark provides some very critical and important insights about Capernaum here, Capernaum in verse one. Why? Because he tells us Jesus was at where? Home. We studied a few weeks ago looking at the early parts of Jesus' ministry that most of his ministry in these last three and a half years was conducted in and around Lake Galilee in the north, north of 100 miles north, three or four days journey from Jerusalem. The three-year public ministry of Jesus happened largely along a lakeshore in an obscure blue-collar area of Israel. Now, contrary to what dramatic movies and well-meaning flannel boards may have suggested, Jesus, as we said a few weeks ago, and his disciples did not embark on a three-year camping trip. No, they mostly came home to Capernaum. And it says here that Jesus was at home. Now, most scholars, and we'll see in a minute, likely this was, he was making base camp Peter's house, Peter's home. The majority of their time with the Lord these last three and a half years were lived right in this area, just a few miles around the north shore of Galilee, the lake. Now, people knew where Jesus was living and staying. They knew where he called home. And as I said, most scholars would attribute this to the home of Peter. We have no proof of this, but a clue might be in a description that Mark gives us in a minute that inclines me to think this was likely Peter's house. Now, as you heard when I read the passage, Mark gives very specific description about the destruction of this man's roof, wherever, whoever's house this was. By the way, Luke and Matthew leave out that graphic description. And because we know that Mark got his information from Peter, it makes sense that as this roof is being destroyed, Peter is taking note. It makes sense that he's telling Mark, they dug a hole in my, the roof. Verse two. Many were gathered together there. Jesus again draws a crowd. How big a crowd? There was no longer any room. Not even near the door. That's another way of saying people were just overflowing out the door. There wasn't a square inch inside this house where anyone else could be crammed in. Now, one of the things we're going to notice as we move through Mark is how he describes the crowds that seem to always find Jesus. And this is surprising what you're going to find when you see these crowds. The significant characteristic of all of these crowds is that they end up hindering Jesus' ministry and hindering the people who really need to get to Jesus than they do being aids to his ministry. It seems that these hordes of people are more of a hindrance than they are a trophy of his success. 
Now, what you should notice here in verse 2 is what Jesus does with a small assembled group of people. Standing room only. And what does he do? He preaches. He was speaking the word to them. Now, we need to have a, a, a little excursus for a moment on what it means that he was speaking the word to them. Does this mean that he was opening a Bible and talking to them in an expository fashion? Or that would have been, meant unrolling a scroll, by the way. What was this, this message? What did it mean? Well, if you follow the word word or logos throughout Mark, it predominantly means telling the gospel. The word word or the word logos has a, a wide range of meanings. It can mean the, the, uh, the living word of God. In John 1, 1, the word became flesh. It can mean a, a, a shorthand for the law. It can also mean, as in the case of John the Baptist, and I think Jesus in the, in the gospel of Mark, the good news of the gospel. He was speaking the good news, the gospel to them. Specifically, what was the gospel? that they could be forgiven of sins. Why is that important? Watch what happens with this paralyzed man. The good news of salvation, the good news of forgiveness that he was offering and extended. So this is a, a curious, a wondering crowd. They're all packed in here to hear Jesus talk. A second snapshot now, we pan the camera over and we see a paralyzed man. Verse three, and they came bringing to him a paralytic. Mark starts by identifying a group he calls they. He's gonna be very specific in a, in a moment and say there were actually four of them. The English word paralytic is a transliteration of this Greek word for someone who is paralyzed, paraludikos. It means someone who is unable to walk, someone who is disabled, someone who is substantively paralyzed by either a birth defect or an accident. This raises lots of questions. How was this man paralyzed? Now, if you read a lot of New Testament scholarship, they would look at the way that paralyzed people were a pariah of the society and treated with very much disdain and they say, this man doesn't fit that description because he has four friends who go to great lengths to get him with the Lord. Some speculate that he was probably paralyzed later in life and could have even been paralyzed as a result of a sinful exercise. We don't know that for sure, but it might make sense to consider what Jesus is, is addressing in the man's life. Was it the result of the man's sins? We're not told. You say, what would that look like? What if he was breaking into someone's house and fell and broke his back? We don't know. That's speculation. We just know that he's paralyzed. But what we do also know is he has four very good friends who Jesus is gonna say are full of faith. This is this paralyzed man. We'll find out more about him from his friends. Let's pan the camera again. Thirdly, four faithful friends. Four faithful friends. The end of verse three says he was carried by four men. 
And then Mark explains being unable to get to him because of the crowd, unable because he was paralyzed and unable because you couldn't get in the door. There were too many people. They were at the window, out the door. There was, the crowd was too difficult and too dense to get through by yourself. Imagine four men carrying a pallet with a man. How could they possibly navigate through this crowd? So they have a problem. How can they get their friend to Jesus? Apparently the words, excuse me, were not sufficient. So (laughs) they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralyzed man, the paralytic, was lying. Now let's look at this scene specifically, especially the details of the house and the details of the roof. We can deduce some details here that are important. First, the word for pallet is the same word for bed and the same word for mat. This is a word that was, uh, I think the ESV actually translates it bed. It wasn't just a bed though. It was a mat of, of woven grasses or woven uh, reeds that was used to sleep on to keep you from the, the coldness or the dustiness of the floor. But it was also used to, as someone, for someone who would sit and sell things along the road. It was just a, it was a mat. It was a workhorse Separator between you and the ground. We find there were four men who were presumably carrying the four corners of the mat. That makes sense, right? And the fact that the man was lying on the mat indicates that he could not walk and make his way to Jesus himself. Let's talk about the roof. Let's talk about the house. These roofs were constructed of sticks and branches There's an illustration here that you can see. Laid across larger beams, mud was then packed on top of the branches and the process was repeated crossways where sticks were laid on top of them at a a right angle, at a 90 degree angle. And then mud was put and this happened several layers up. Oftentimes, in areas with high precipitation, like around a lake, they would put clay tiles on the very top of that. That's important because Luke says they removed some tiles to put him down in the roof. So this roof had obviously cross beams of mud and they would put these tiles on so that the the rain wouldn't erode the mud away and tiles were removed and the men got on the roof, which to me is interesting. Can you imagine the difficulty of getting on the roof, carrying a guy by four corners. That's just beyond my engineering skills. Luke 5, 19, remember they moved the tiles also. And this is important. They have to dig this hole big enough to drop a full-size man on a pallet through the hole. How do we know that? Because if they just dug it two or three feet wide and they tried to drop him down head first or feet first, they would lose him. He would slide right off. This is a big hole. A big hole which would also demand lots of digging. The text says they dug. It's the word used for gardening. They gardened through the top of the roof. You can imagine them spreading the layers of sticks out, the layers of branches out, pulling the mud out, digging and digging until they can see down into the room. You can imagine standing in the room. Remember I told you last week, bring your hats. 
People said, why does that mean? I had so many children say, I know why you told us to bring a hat, because all the stuff falls on the people's heads. The kids get it. They get it, and the adults are going, why should we wear a hat in the church building? Imagine the scene. Jesus is preaching. Imagine right now, we're, we, we have this, this church service, and imagine someone starts digging through, and parts of wood start falling on my head. Why would it be on my head? Because they probably sent some feeder holes down to say, where is he? They, wanted, they, they didn't want to drop him on the heads of the wrong people. That wouldn't work out so well. They dig this massive hole, presumably in Peter's roof. Debris falling, everyone looking up. Sunlight gleaming through this opening probably some murmuring and gasping and complaining and can you believe this coming from people's lips and I just imagine the Savior looking up with this face of I've been expecting you fourth scene is an audacious Savior it's an important word. He had the audacity to say something here that's unparalleled, the audacious Savior. Verse 5, and Jesus, seeing their faith, stop right there. How much faith did, did these men have? Well, imagine what it would have been like had this, this, this um, effort gone awry. Imagine they get up there, drop this guy down through there, and Jesus says, get him out of here. Or the people say, get him out of here. They usher him out. They would have lost their reputation. They would have lost everything in the standing in the community. They would have been pariah themselves. This was a big risk. But their faith, Jesus observes, is what makes the risk worth taking. Seeing their faith. Faith in what? Is that hard to discern? <laughs> they had a paralyzed friend. And they knew Jesus could heal. Their faith was that Jesus could heal their friend. Can you imagine having a man paralyzed? This is not like those paralytics who go to common day faith healers and are screened out of the line before they get up there for fear that the healer would be embarrassed and unable to deal with these people. The audacity of what Jesus says is unparalleled by any statement ever uttered by any human lips. Son, your sins are forgiven. He calls him son, term of endearment, also a term that puts him in the authority position. And whether this was a boy or an older man, he was certainly in the inferior position. And Jesus grants forgiveness to this man for his sins. Now this is important. The man wasn't looking for forgiveness. His friends didn't come wanting to be forgiven or wanting his sins forgiven. But that's exactly what Jesus gives 
It's easy for us, I think, when we look at Scripture to chop up the Trinity into unbiblical slices. We so often think of God the Father as the one who forgives us through the work of Jesus, His Son. Now, that's certainly true, and there are texts for that, but don't miss the fact that here in this passage, Jesus himself is the one granting forgiveness, not just the means of forgiveness, not just the propitiation for our sins, the payment for our sins. He grants forgiveness to this man. That's significant because it means that Jesus assumes, get this, that the man had sinned against him. Can you imagine going into a room where two of your kids are arguing and one of them had been rude and unkind to the other and you speaking for the one who had been mistreated said, I forgive you. The offense wasn't against you, mom, dad. No, no, no. Listen, David said, Psalm 51, 4, against you, God, against you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Paul understood Jesus to be the one who grants and gives forgiveness. Ephesians 1, 7, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, he, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness. He, God rather, rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. What's your perspective about how you're offending when you sin? How do you see your sin lining up? Against whom do you see your sin aligning? Look back at the phrase, seeing their faith. They went through a lot of trouble. That's because they believed Jesus could heal their friend. But Jesus gives him far, something far better than healing. For his body, he forgives his sin. What audacity. What audacity. Which brings us to, number five, the religious opposition. But, son, your sins are forgiven, but, very important, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning, this is important, in their hearts. They weren't speaking out loud yet. Oh, they would chirp like minor birds pretty soon. But right now they're just thinking. By the way, here for the second time in two chapters we meet the scribes. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 22, where people noticed that Jesus taught with authority, unlike the scribes. They were always footnoting and referencing. And Jesus said, I say to you. You've heard it said, and I say. He quoted no one. Do you think that comparison, <laughs> that Jesus taught different, better than the scribes, do you think that comparison might have made it back to their ears? Oh, I think that was the, the word on the streets. Of course it did. Remember, they're sent to investigate Jesus. It's interesting to compare how Differently, Luke and Mark describe these men. Luke, being the 
the physician, the engineer-minded man says in Luke 5, 17, one day Jesus was teaching this day, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. This is not just from Galilee. This is from Jerusalem. This is all the bigwigs, and he knew it, and they were sitting there with scowls on their faces waiting to trap him. I love that Mark doesn't go into that detail. He's not very impressed with these guys. Ah, the scribes, that's all he says. Probably Peter's perspective as well. Now we come to the crux of the issue with Jesus and it's the very thing that Jesus intends to highlight. So verse seven, they say in their heart, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were exactly right. Who forgives sins except God? Only God can grant forgiveness. And anyone who would make the claim that he could do so himself commits in their mind a blasphemy worthy of death. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, says the Lord. I will not remember your sins. Only God forgives. Then in Leviticus 24, 16, moreover, the one who blasphemes in the name of the Lord, taking on the place of the Lord, shall be put to death. The congregation shall, shall stone him. You know what? They were right that only God could forgive sins. They were wrong in thinking that it wasn't God in their presence who was forgiving sins. Scribes have come to find something for which they can condemn, condemn Jesus, and guess what? They just found it. This passage is the hourglass that turns over in a march toward the cross. And little did they know they were setting Jesus up to prove his point that he was God himself who could forgive sins. Number six, as we pan around the room, now we find a divine claim. Remember, they were thinking this in their heart. They didn't say it out loud. Immediately aware, Jesus, aware in his spirit, there's lots of stuff unsaid, but Jesus knows he is God that they were reasoning that way within themselves. And he said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? He knew exactly what they were thinking. Fascinating. Notice this verse reveals what is going on, not only in their hearts, but in Jesus' heart. How did Mark know what Jesus was thinking? Well, he must have told Peter. He must have told him. Now let's ask a simple question. What powers, what divine attributes is Jesus displaying here? Omnipotence. Omniscience. Remember, in the incarnation, Jesus set aside the use of some of his divine attributes, but he didn't give them up completely. He saw this interchange take place, Mark, uh, Peter did, and must have deliberated 
with the Lord later got the facts. What is clear is this. Jesus knows the sins of the paralyzed man. I'm forgiving your sins. He knows them. But he also knows the sinful minds and sins and hearts of the scribes. So he speaks directly to their question and concern. Verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. That's an interesting statement. What is he after? He's saying, there's a problem of proving I can forgive sins. If he says your sins are forgiven, could anyone prove that he was wrong? No, but how could he prove he was right? It's immaterial, right? It's, it's, it's not something physical. So he says, well, which is easier, forgiving the sins or healing a paralyzed man? Then here's, here it is, verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins, he's gonna commit a miracle. This is the point of the story according to the lips of our Lord. Here it is. Jesus announces he's going to prove he has the authority to forgive sins by showing he has the power to heal this man's paralysis. You don't believe I can do something that's immaterial? Well, I'll show you something, something so dramatically materially that you'll know I have such authority and power. That's a problem. How, how could anyone know that this man's sins had been forgiven? How could you know that? Couldn't anyone say, no, they haven't? Such power and such authority would be invisible and unverifiable, but this miracle is going to be visible and verifiable. So now we need to pull over just for a minute before we finish the story. Jesus for the first time in Mark, calls himself the son of man. And in an odd way, he speaks about himself in the third person. Can you imagine me sitting here talking and I'm saying uh, something like, you know, um, the preacher is talking about Mark right now. You say, that's weird. You are the preacher. You, you, no one talks about themselves in the third person except Jesus. Remember in John 17, three, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. He says, they know the Jesus Christ, the one speaking, speaks of himself in third person. Third person. He does so here, calling himself the son of man. That occurs 14 times in the book of Mark. Every time Jesus uses it about himself. Now we'll do a fuller study of this later. Three times he uses it futuristically, uh, apocalyptically in context about the coming judgment. Two times the title points to Jesus' authority here in chapter two to forgive and in chapter two, verse 28, the authority to take authority over the Sabbath. But the most extensive use of the term son of man is in reference to the sufferings of Christ himself. He actually uses the term nine times to talk about the divine purpose of his death. I do think it's interesting, though. I can't resist. If you want to look at this, in Daniel chapter 7, and this is important because I think this is exactly what the scribes would have thought about when he said son of man. It's the most prominent use of the term son of man in the, in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given, to the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I think when he said the Son of Man, they thought, wait, you are saying you are that guy in Daniel 7? And of course he was saying, yes, that's me. We'll have lots more study on the Son of Man upcoming. Back to the story. At the end of verse 10, he said to the paralytic, and now he talks to this, this, this man, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, go home. What's significant is he doesn't touch the man. He touched the unclean leper. He just speaks to the paralyzed man. Why? Showing his power by speaking. If he can speak this man's healing, he has the authority to speak this man's forgiveness. By speaking, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And by the same act, he declares forgiveness of the sinner. These snapshots are incredible. His divine claim is he can actually do not only healing, but forgiving. Which leads us to the last scene. A wandering crowd. Now, I know what you're thinking. Rick's lost his mind. That was number one. It's the same as the last one as well. <laughs> I know the point is repeated. They came because of amazement, but they will leave even more amazed. Watch what happens. Here's our favorite word in Mark. And immediately, he got up, picked up the pallet, went out in the sight of everyone. This was a verifiable Miracle to many, so that all were amazed and were glorifying God. And this was their comment. We've never seen anything, anything like this before. I mean, think of the, the marvelous, amazing intricacies of this miracle. If this man was paralyzed, that means all of his muscles were atrophied. His bones were weak. His joints were probably swollen together. His legs were likely deformed in some way. And Jesus doesn't say, get up and go to rehab. He says, get up and go home. No rehabilitation, no physical therapy, no occupational therapist. If you are one, we're thankful for you people. Get up, walk out, go home, and he did. I love how Mark says, in everyone's sight. The scribes would not be able to say, ah, that didn't really happen. This question raises some, this narrative rather raises some questions. Are we amazed at the work and words of Jesus? They were all amazed. Are we amazed? Do we say we've never seen anyone like this? Do you have an understanding of how deeply you need forgiveness or is your 
your greater concern for your physical well-being than it is spiritual, spiritual well-being. Have you rightly diagnosed your real problem? Have you sought the Lord Jesus himself, who alone, like God, can grant forgiveness? This is a big 12-verse explanation for this one statement. Jesus is God. God. 